0: Hey guys, are you thinking about starting your own podcast? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me give you the details. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. cat lawyer i'm your host elise joined by my co-host winston the cat every other week winston and i will bring you a new story about a murder disappearance or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown the pacific northwest just a reminder this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners including descriptions of violence sexual assault and crimes against animals and children listener discretion is advised Hi guys. Welcome to our first bonus episode. The story we're going to share with you is one that I wasn't sure I wanted to tell. It hits close to home and it rocked the city of Portland, Oregon. And if I'm being honest, we've never fully recovered. I'm talking about the case of Kyron Horman, a seven-year-old boy who disappeared without a trace 10 years ago on June 4th, 2010. The main reason I decided to cover this story is that I had a completely skewed understanding of this case. For years, I believed the one-sided reporting about Kyron's biological mom, Desiree Young. But after reading Rebecca Morris's book Boy Missing, The Search for Kyron Horman, and watching the ID special, Little Boy Lost, I learned how wrong I was. I also decided to cover this story because it's been 10 years since Kyron went missing. 10 years. By sharing his story and demanding both answers and action, I want Desiree to know that people still care about Kyron and they still want to bring him home. The story starts back in April 1996 when Kane Horman and Desiree Young, Kyron's parents, met at a gym. The two dated for a while and they eventually got engaged. Desiree had doubts about marrying Kane, but her soon-to-be mother-in-law persuaded her to go through with the marriage. By Desiree's account, the marriage had cracks and wasn't always a happy one. By February 2002, just seven months before Kyron was born, the couple started marriage counseling. But that fizzled out in July when Desiree found a note from Terry Ecker which confirmed Kane had been cheating on her, while she was pregnant, no less. Desiree gave birth to Kyron on September 9, 2002, and she moved out of Kane's house in December, taking Kyron with her. Not so coincidentally, Terry Ecker moved into Kane's house shortly after this. A lot of the media reports suggested that Terry came into Kane's life to help him care for baby Chiron. But according to Desiree, that was not the case. She had primary custody of Kyron until he turned two. At that time, Desiree had taken a trip to Canada to visit some friends. She had a history of kidney infections, and she stayed longer than planned to undergo alternative treatments. Because she ended up staying in Canada for four months, she signed over temporary custody of Chiron to his father, Kane. Desiree did the same thing for her older son, Quinn. When Desiree returned from Canada in October 2004, Kane refused to give Chiron back to her. A judge ruled that Chiron and Quinn would stay with their dads in Portland. Desiree had to move in with her parents, who lived in Medford over four hours from Portland, due to the amount of medical bills she'd racked up while she was in Canada. She made the four-hour drive every other weekend to take Kyron for visitation. So despite what the media reported, Desiree didn't abandon Kyron, and she certainly didn't need Terry to raise him. Kane and Terry eventually got married in Hawaii in April 2007. Their daughter Kiara was born about a year later. Terry was an adopted-only child who grew up with her parents in Roseburg. Terry wanted to be a teacher and graduated from college with a bachelor's degree in education. She worked sporadically as a substitute teacher, but never found a full-time teaching position. From everything I read, it seemed like she was primarily a stay-at-home mom after Kiara was born. Now that we've covered the background, we're going to fast forward to June 4, 2010. Kyron is seven years old at this point, and he was getting ready to participate in his school science fair. Kyron created a poster board presentation and diorama on the Red-Eyed Tree Frog, one of Kyron's absolute favorite things. Skyline Elementary opened at 8 a.m., and around 8.15, Kyron was seen with his stepmom, Terry, by PTA President Gina Zimmerman. Terry took the now-infamous picture of Kyron grinning from ear to ear in front of his Red-Eyed Tree Frog exhibit. This is the last picture of Kyron that would ever be taken. Terry left the school around 8.45 after touring some exhibits with Kyron. At 9, a student reported seeing Kyron near the south entrance of the school. Kyron's teacher marked him absent around 10 a.m., thinking that he was at a doctor's appointment with Terry. At around 1.21 p.m., Terry posted the picture she took of Kyron at the science fair on Facebook, and she sent Desiree an email letting her know about the picture. Cain arrived home from work sometime between 2 and 2.30. He was an engineer at Intel. As they did every day, at least according to Terry, Cain, Kiara, and Terry went to meet Kyron at his bus stop at 3.30 p.m. This is when the bus driver told them Kyron never got on the bus to come home. The bus driver radioed the school, who informed Cain and Terry that Kyron was absent from school all day. Kane and Terry immediately drove to the school, which was only a few miles from their house. When they got to the school, they were told about the confusion over Kyron's doctor's appointment. Terry swears the teacher got the information confused because the doctor's appointment wasn't until the following week. The school secretary called Desiree, who was listed as Kyron's emergency contact. When Desiree said she didn't have Kyron, the secretary informed Desiree that Kyron was missing. The secretary then called police at 3.46 to report Kyron missing. Desiree began the 270-mile drive from Medford to Portland. Forty-five minutes after police were notified, they arrived at Skyline Elementary and the Horman home. Parents of Skyline students were notified at 5.30 that Kyron didn't come home on the bus. A formal missing person search didn't start until 7 p.m. Search teams arrived at Skyline around 8 p.m. and concluded their search of the school almost three hours later. Teams searched every inch of the school, including all crawl spaces, storage areas, classrooms, and outbuildings. They also searched the Horman home. Kyron wasn't found during any of these searches. The only things police knew the first night were that Kyron's jacket and backpack were left at the school and Terry had driven Kane's white truck that day instead of her cherry red Mustang. The following day, June 5th, search and rescue teams of 60 to 70 people conducted another search of nearby fields at 5 a.m. On June 6th, police began conducting interviews with students and their parents. Over the next few days, police would learn the following information. Kyron had poor eyesight, and despite wearing his glasses, he would never go off on his own. Over 400 visitors were at Skyline on the day of the science fair, and visitors weren't required to sign in as they usually did. Even worse, the school had no surveillance. Searches continued through June 10th. Police questioned both Kane and Desiree, as well as their respective spouses, Terry and Tony. As we all know, when a child goes missing, the parents are the first suspects, and this case was no exception. Police were particularly interested in Terry as she was the last of the adults to spend a significant amount of time with Kyron on June 4th. Terry claims after she left the school at 8.45, she ran a few errands with her daughter Kiara, went to the gym, then went for a drive with baby Kiara to get her to fall asleep. She then spent the afternoon emailing and texting friends until Kane got home around 2 p.m. Terry changed her story frequently in the days following Kyron's disappearance. Police were able to confirm, through store surveillance and receipts, that Terry went to two grocery stores looking for medicine for Kiara after she left the school. She was on surveillance at 9.12 a.m. at the first store and 9.40 at the second store. They also confirmed she stopped at the gym at 12.20 p.m. and left around 12.42 p.m. According to witnesses, Terry left Kiara in the gym's daycare and talked to another gym member, but she never actually worked out. This witness also mentioned Terry was showing off the picture she took of Chiron at the science fair that day. Although police were able to verify parts of her story, there was an unaccounted period of time of 2 hours and 40 minutes, from the time she left the second grocery store to the time she arrived at the gym. Terry claims this is the time she was driving Kiara through back roads near her house to get Kiara to fall asleep. Around the time police were learning this information, the family spoke to the media for the first time at a news conference on June 11. They showed clips from this news conference in the ID special I watched, and it's uncomfortable. Terry leans on Desiree's shoulder, and she appears to start crying, but you never actually see any tears. Desiree makes it clear that she and Terry were not close, so this was super weird behavior. Desiree's husband, Tony, who is a member of law enforcement in Medford, actually says in the documentary that this is the point where his view on Terry shifted, because she was acting and talking like a suspect. Two days later, the search for Kyron ended, and his case was reclassified as a criminal investigation, a clear sign that the police think something sinister happened to Kyron, and he didn't just wander off or get lost. Several weeks into the investigation, police were starting to zero in on Terry. They obtained her cell phone records and found that they didn't match the location where Terry said she was during that unaccounted for gap in time. Terry's cell phone pinged off a tower near Sovie Island, which is not close to the grocery store she went to or to her gym. In fact, Sobe's Island is in the complete opposite direction of all three places. Divers searched ponds, marshes, and tributaries on Sobe's Island while a helicopter flew overhead, but nothing was found. On June 18th, police released a new flyer with four pictures, one of Chiron, one of a white truck similar to Kane's, and two of Terry. That same day, Terry went in for a second polygraph. All four parents had been given a polygraph in the early days of the investigation. Desiree, Kane, and Tony had all passed their polygraphs, but Terry didn't pass hers. We would eventually learn that Terry didn't pass her second polygraph, and she walked out of a third one. She tries to explain the failures away by claiming she's deaf in one ear and couldn't hear the questions the examiner was asking her. The problem is, according to Desiree, one of the questions the examiner asked was whether or not she could hear and understand the questions being asked of her. So again, according to Desiree, this doesn't explain why Terry failed two polygraph tests. Obviously, polygraphs aren't admissible in court. They're used to test changes in a person's body temperature, heart rate, and look for general signs of anxiousness. But it doesn't look good for someone to fail two tests and then leave in the middle of a third one. According to Desiree, the polygraph revolved around three questions. One. Do you know where Kyron Horman is? 2. Were you with Kyron Horman after 8:45 45 a.m. on June 4, 2010? 3. Do you have any direct involvement or indirect knowledge of Kyron Horman's kidnapping? Obviously, Terry failing multiple polygraphs only heightened the suspicion surrounding her, though, for the record, she has never been named a person of interest or a suspect in the case. Police have only stated that she is the focal point of the investigation, whatever that means. Police convinced Kane to wear a wire and record conversations with Desiree, Tony, and Terry while they were at the Horman home. It was becoming clear to Kane where the police were focusing their attention. On June 26th, a 911 call was made from the Horman residence at 5.17pm. The call was classified as a threat call. And I believe police responded to this call, but no one was arrested or charged with anything. At 11.30 that night, 911 was called again in what investigators called a custody issue. To my knowledge, they didn't respond to this call. That was the night Kane moved out of the family home and took his daughter, Kiara, with him. Keep in mind, this is only three weeks after Kyron went missing. Two days later... Terry was served with a restraining order and divorce papers at the family home. Terry then hired prominent criminal defense attorney Stephen House. This is extremely interesting to me. Her husband has left and taken her daughter. He filed a restraining order and he wants to divorce her. All of this should be resolved in family court. So why does Terry hire a criminal defense attorney before she even hires a family law attorney? Full disclosure: I looked up Stephen House's website and he. Only practices criminal law. So again, why is Terry's response to being served with divorce papers to go out and hire one of the best criminal defense attorneys in the state of Oregon? I have a theory, and it involves the most fundamental concept of being a lawyer the attorney client privilege. Basically, attorney client privilege boils down to this anything you tell your attorney stays between you and your attorney. There is an exception if your attorney thinks you're going to commit a future crime but any past crime you've committed basically stays a secret between you and your lawyer. I'll come back to this theory later on, so keep it in the back of your mind. On July 4th, a former landscaper for the Horman family named Rudy tells the media that Terry offered him money to kill Kane six or seven months before Kyron went missing. Police actually set up a sting operation and had Rudy and an undercover officer go to the Horman house to ask Terry if she was still interested in having Kane killed for the agreed upon amount of $10,000. Terry didn't incriminate herself during this exchange, and she was suspicious of the whole thing, so she called 911 to report a threat. She later told reporters that she had spurned Rudy's advances, which is why he made up the murder-for-hire story. When Kane was asked about the whole situation, he revealed that he didn't even know Terry had hired a landscaper. On July 16th, Terry agreed to leave the family home and she moved to Roseburg to live with her parents. Kane and Kiara returned to the family home the next day. It was later revealed that Terry's friend Dee Dee Spicer had stayed at the Horman home with Terry for 11 days after Kane had moved out. It also came out that Terry had been having an affair with Michael Cook, a friend of Kane's, from high school. The affair started three weeks after Kyron went missing, and police found explicit texts and nude photos on Terry's phone that had been sent to Michael. Clearly, Terry wasn't doing herself any favors in shifting the focus off of her. Since investigators had narrowed their focus to Terry, they were particularly interested in interviewing her close friends. The first friend they wanted to speak to was Dee Dee Spicer. Dee Dee and Terry met at the gym and used to work out together. Dee Dee lived in Towalatin, a little less than thirty minutes from Skyline Elementary. Several witnesses mentioned seeing Dee Dee on June fourth. She claimed she was working at the nursery all day, except she was unaccounted for and couldn't be reached between eleven fifteen a.m. and one p.m. Dee Dee claims she never left the nursery but police weren't able to confirm this because her phone was turned off at the time. They searched Dee's home, but didn't turn up anything. On July 26th, Dee appeared before a grand jury, but her attorney later confirmed she didn't testify or speak to the grand jury that day. In August 2010, police conducted a ground search near the nursery where Dee worked at, but again, nothing was found. Police also learned that Didi Dee Dee bought a burner phone after Kyron went missing because she was worried about the police tapping her phone, which to me is a huge red flag. Most normal people don't have burner phones. The only ones who have them nowadays are drug dealers. Why was Dee, Dee so worried about the police tapping her phone? There would be no movement in the case for another two months. Ground searches were conducted near Sovie's Island in October 2010. Over the course of three different weekends, search and rescue dive teams combed the area after receiving a tip from some fishermen. Nothing came from these searches. In January 2011, a new search of the West Hills near Sobeys Island was conducted based on new and, quote, very specific, end quote, information. Police never elaborated further on what this information was, and nothing was found during the search. At this point, six months into the investigation, 646 searches had been conducted over 100,000 acres, 4,257 tips were received, and 40 witnesses had appeared before the grand jury. Police had spent over 26,000 hours investigating the case and conducted 3,500 interviews. Investigators had looked at 60 persons of interest and all had been ruled out, including local sex offenders. According to Rebecca Morris's book, police failed to request that Skyline preserve all phone records and computer logon information from June 4th, so all that information was gone. So, six months after Kyron vanished, police were no closer to learning what happened to him. And now we come back to my theory. In the six months that Kyron had been gone, the Horman divorce proceedings were still being sorted out. The proceedings were delayed several times as Terry's attorney argued that she was the focus of the criminal investigation and was essentially a de facto suspect. So it wouldn't be fair to call her to testify in the divorce proceedings and ask her to violate her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Now obviously, her attorney could be arguing this because he's an experienced lawyer and he's just doing what's best for his client. But if Terry doesn't know anything or didn't do anything to Kyron, then she should have nothing to say that would incriminate herself, right? To me, this hints at the fact that not only is it possible Terry knows something and or did something to Kyron, but it's also highly likely that her attorney knows exactly what she did if she in fact harmed Kyron. The thing about attorney-client privilege is that the client is the holder of the privilege, meaning that only the client can decide when and if they want the information to be shared or if they want to provoke the privilege. This is all speculation on my part, and I have no evidence or knowledge that would substantiate my theory, but it's just some food for thought. Nearly two years after Kyron disappeared, Desiree filed a civil suit against Terry, She wanted a judge to compel Terry to either return Kyron or, if he was dead, to reveal where his remains are. The judge ordered that the civil suit would be allowed to go forward, but Terry wouldn't be deposed in order to once again protect her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. But Desiree's attorney could depose Dee Dee Spicer because she never testified before the grand jury. So, in October 2012, Dee Dee was deposed. She was offered a deal. If she provided information on Terry, the DA would delay filing charges for obstruction of justice. Dee Dee didn't take the deal. She was deposed for over an hour. As soon as Desiree's attorney started asking her questions about Terry, Dee Dee invoked her Fifth Amendment right. In fact, she exercised this right a total of 142 times during the deposition. Unfortunately, Desiree was forced to drop the civil suit in July 2013 because investigators weren't willing to share their files and let Terry know what evidence they had. Desiree felt it was more important for the investigation to move forward rather than the civil trial. That same month, Dee, Dee testified before the grand jury. She told the media that she had passed a polygraph test and received an immunity deal. She also claimed that she had been cleared by law enforcement. All of this information appears to come from Dee, Dee, so I'm not entirely sure how accurate or reliable it is. Also, it's extremely convenient that as soon as Desiree drops the civil suit, Dee Dee gets her immunity deal and finally testifies before the grand jury. Whatever she knows about Terry and Kyron, she has made it abundantly clear that she doesn't want Kyron's family to have that knowledge or information. Kane and Terry's divorce was finalized on December 31st, 2013. They settled just two days before trial. According to Rebecca Morris's book, Terry settled so she wouldn't have to undergo a psychological evaluation or be deposed. Nearly four years after Kyron went missing on June 3, 2014, Kane was awarded custody of Kiara, with Terry only being allowed strictly supervised visits. In August 2014, Terry attempted to change her name due to the publicity of the case but the judge denied her request, citing the ongoing criminal investigation. He said it would go against the public's interest to allow her to change her name, which is the legal standard for a name change request. In July 2016, Terry was arrested for stealing a gun from her roommate. At the time, she was living in California. Three months later, she went on Dr. Phil and said that she believed Kyron was kidnapped by a man in a white pickup truck. She also told Dr. Phil she blamed, quote, political corruption, end quote, for why the investigation was focused on her. In December 2016, Terry was arrested again, this time for driving a stolen vehicle. At some point during this time, she was also linked to another murder-for-hire plot, this time involving an ex-boyfriend from 1990. She was never officially charged in the case. Just this past June was the 10-year anniversary of Kyron's disappearance. The Multnomah County Sheriff's Office released a statement saying that the case is still open and active, but there have been no updates or leads for years. So, what happened to Kyron, and did Terry have something to do with it? The question I kept coming across in my research was why. Why would Terry harm Kyron? Desiree provided some insight, she has been suspicious of Terry's involvement pretty much since day one. In her interviews with Rebecca Morris, Desiree reveals that prior to Kyron's disappearance, Terry was exchanging emails with a friend about her marital issues with Kane. In the emails, she blames their problems on Kyron and talks about how she resents him. Kane himself admitted that he and Terry often argued about disciplining Kyron. He said Terry was incredibly strict about disciplining Kyron and didn't allow him any room to make mistakes. Desiree said Terry had tried to send Kyron to live with her in Medford on several occasions, but Kane would never agree to it. Terry had even talked to a divorce attorney before Kyron went missing. Kane, for his part, later said he regretted bringing Terry into Kyron's life. He said they often disagreed about money, and Terry was a spender, but she felt like Kane was controlling when it came to their money. A grand jury was first impaneled back in July 2010, just one month after Kyron disappeared. The grand jury was reconvened on several occasions after that, but there was never enough evidence for the jury to issue an indictment. Generally, the grand jury must have probable cause or a reasonable basis to believe that a crime has been committed before they can issue an indictment. Rebecca Morris's book offers two explanations for why the grand jury hasn't indicted Terry in connection with Kyron's disappearance. First, she notes that the Casey Anthony trial was unfolding around the same time the criminal investigation was taking place. According to Rebecca, when Casey Anthony was acquitted, the DA was worried about prosecuting a case that was primarily based on circumstantial evidence. This would explain why the grand jury was convened several times, but never issued an indictment. There just wasn't enough hard evidence, at least that we know of. This lack of evidence, or a case built primarily on circumstantial evidence, is further complicated by the fact that this is likely a nobody homicide case, which are notoriously difficult to win. This is another potential explanation for why the grand jury won't indict. There's no evidence to suggest Kyron is dead and or whether he was the victim of a crime. Without a body, we can only speculate as to what happened to Chiron. And in no body cases, the defense's argument for reasonable doubt writes itself. Without a body, the prosecution can't prove a crime was committed. The alleged victim could walk through the door at any minute unharmed. Kyron's family has accepted that he is likely no longer alive, but they continue to live with the pain of not knowing where he is or what happened to him. Desiree has asked Terry numerous times, mother to mother, to tell police what happened to Kyron. She refuses to give up on finding him. Assuming Terry is the one responsible for harming Kyron, she is the only one that can tell us where he is. The final point I want to make goes back to the attorney-client privilege. This privilege survives death. So even if Terry were to pass away tomorrow, her attorney can't reveal any of her confidences. So if Terry intends on taking any information she has about Kyron with her to the grave, there's a good chance we will never know what happened to an innocent little seven-year-old boy who loved to play with Hot Wheels and his cat Bootsy, and who never got the chance to grow up to be a police detective like his stepdad. If you or someone you know has any information on the disappearance of Kyron Horman, please call the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office at 503 988 0560. If you want to learn more information about this case, please check out our website, truecrimecatlawyer.com, to see a list of sources for this episode. I highly recommend Rebecca Morris's book, Boy Missing, The Search for Kyron Horman, which is available on Amazon. Thanks for listening to today's bonus episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com And you can find us on Twitter at True Crime Cat Law and on Instagram at True Crime Cat Lawyer. Don't forget to check out our Facebook discussion group. Just search for True Crime Cat Lawyer. If you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.